the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Amin Tice. I spent the last few episodes introducing the listener to some early theological debates in Islam. But as important as theology is in shaping the religion of Islam, the jurists in Arabic al-fuqaha and their elaboration of law would become or would ultimately come to dominate the process of defining Islam, at least in the Sunni context, but to a certain extent also within the Twelver Shi'i context. Not that theology is irrelevant to discussions of legal matters. Theological positions are very important in establishing the basis upon which the building of sacred law is to stand. For example, the question of what the Qur'an is, a big question as you might remember from past episodes, this question has much relevance to the construction of Islamic law. Sunni orthodoxy came to define the Qur'anic text contained in the Mus'haf, the closed official corpus, as the literal, eternal, uncreated word of God. This has serious ramifications, serious implications on how Qur'anic pronouncements responding to particular events in the life of Muhammad and his community are then understood in legal terms as implementable at all times and in all places. Another example is the hadith, the reports about what Muhammad said or did. The status of the hadith literature generally and the status of particular hadith reports were highly debated early on. But by the mid-9th century, mid-800s, the pro-Hadith movement had become very important and ultimately the theological position that came to dominate within Sunnism was that the Hadith was a form of wahi, a form of revelation like the Qur'an. The Hadith came to be seen as indeed representing the words of Muhammad and that as a prophet he was guided in his words and his actions by God. This is a theological position, a theological position that has again legal implications. So not only is the Quran a source of sacred law, the Hadith, which is a much more extensive body of literature, was also a source of sacred law.
Now, we must, however, remember that it is about the Islam of the religious elites that I'm speaking here. Popular Islam and its interactions or, or lack of interaction with the productions of the Muslim jurists needs a separate discussion. In the next few episodes, I will focus on the legal elaborations of Muslim jurists and I will try to draw a picture that allows uh, the listener to have a good idea about Islamic legal frameworks as they develop in history. You might likely already be familiar with the term Sharia, a term that is often translated as Islamic law. This translation is certainly acceptable, but it could also be misleading in a number of ways. For instance, it gives the impression that there is one Islamic law, which is absolutely false. The Islamic legal frameworks are diverse in a number of significant ways, as will become apparent by the end of this series of episodes on Sharia. The term Islamic law might also fail to catch the various ways in which Muslim legal theorists organized their subject. For example, by the time we get to more mature stages of the historical construction of Islamic law, for many Muslim legal theorists, the Sharia is viewed as God's law in the absolute divine sense, while the legal rulings that are derived by the Muslim scholars fall within the purview of fiqh, spelled F-I-Q-H in English. In this construction, Sharia is divine, it's perfect, it's immutable, unchangeable, but the fiqh is generally seen as human, relative, and debatable among the scholars. Now, in practice, the picture gets messier for many reasons, including legal precedent, uh, competition between legal schools, socio-political and cultural considerations, etc. Another way that the term Islamic law might be misleading is that the concept of law in the modern sense has to do with organizing the relations between people in society. This is certainly part of Islamic law as it historically develops. But another important component of Islamic law is the relation between God and human beings. So that Islamic law regulates issues of worship, like prayer, fasting, pilgrimage, almsgiving, etc. But also, Islamic law gave all human activity a particular value. In other words, Muslim jurists claimed that all human actions 
fall within a number of categories. There are slight differences from one school to another, but generally these categories are five. Number one, mandatory. In Arabic, fard or wajib. Number two, recommended. In Arabic, mustahab or mandub. Number three, permissible. In Arabic, mubah. Number four, reprehensible. In Arabic, makruh. And number five, forbidden. In Arabic, haram. What actions fall within which category is debated by the jurists? On many important issues, there evolved a general agreement. On many others, disagreements remained. Importantly, the process of deriving legal rulings, in Arabic, ahkam, was valued by those involved in the process as much as the ruling that was reached on a particular issue. Generally, Muslim jurists recognized their fallibility in deriving the ahkam, the legal rulings, as is clear from the common phrase, Allahu A'lam, that they used at the end of their pronouncements, and which means, God knows best. Here again, I must stress that there was a tension between this humble attitude at the theoretical level and the practical implications, the practical ramifications of a social group speaking in the name of God in particular social contexts. I hope that this general introduction to the subject was useful and in the next few episodes we will try and follow the historical development of what we call Islamic law from its early elaborations to its mature stages. Thank you for listening. I leave you in peace. Thank you.